Ce sont des puristes du blues. Fleetwood Mac Over the course of just one year, 1974, British blues rock band Fleetwood Mac would go from a career low point by any measure, the bottom of the barrel, a punchline to their peers, to suddenly, by year's end, transformed, reinvented, and ready to become one of the most successful, top-selling acts of all time. Roots of Fleetwood Mac go back to May 1966, when drummer Mick Fleetwood, ex the Cheneys and the Bow Street Runners, played for the first time with guitarist Peter Green in an instrumental outfit called Peter B's Lunars, later known as Shotgun Express. By July, Peter Green had left Shotgun Express to replace Eric Clapton in the legendary John Mayles Blues Breakers, which led to a close alliance with the Blues Breakers bass guitarist John McVie. The subsequent studio record, Hard Road, gave the Bluesbreakers another top ten hit album. By April 1967, Mick Fleetwood had also joined the Bluesbreakers, reuniting him with Peter Green and used some free studio time to record Double Trouble, featuring Peter Green, Mick Fleetwood and John McVie playing together for the first time. Fleetwood Mac was formed in 1967. Led by singer-guitarist Peter Green for its first three years, the group during that time also included two other singer-guitarists, Jeremy Spencer and Danny Kerwin, plus drummer Mick Fleetwood and bass player John McVie. John Mayle had given Peter Green a, a birthday present which amounted to a few hours' studio time. And during that session, Peter recorded an instrumental which was called Fleetwood Mac, mainly because me and John were playing on it. So when he formed uh, the band, he just chose the name Fleetwood Mac. This era brought Fleetwood Mac half a dozen British hits, including Black Magic Woman and this one, the soulful need your love so bad. Need someone's hand To lead me through the night I need someone's arms To hold and squeeze me tight Now when the night begins I'm out of bed Because I need your love so bad. Albatross was the biggest hit for the early Fleetwood Mac. It topped the British chart in 1968 and returned to the top three five years later when it was re-released, although by then Peter Green had left the group. Emotionally, he wasn't up to and didn't want to continue being involved with any sort of commitment at all, whether it be music uh, or people. And he just withdrew, quite literally. He stayed at home for the better part of three years and hardly ever went out, actually. Oh, well. 
In May 1970, Peter Green left the group he had founded. After a few weeks as a quartet, John McVie's wife Christine, a singer and keyboard player who had tasted chart success with Chicken Shack, was recruited to join her husband in Fleetwood Mac. The next four years saw Fleetwood Mac undergoing several personnel changes. Spencer and Kerwin left the band, as did several other musicians, most of whom joined only briefly. Mick Fleetwood and the McVees struggled to recapture Fleetwood Mac's previous chart success and finally decided to base themselves in California, where there appeared to be more interest in the group. Johnny Walker here on Sounds of the 70s, joined in the studio by Elmer Gantry and Kirby Gregory. Elmer, that's quite a name you got there. How did you get that? Well, in the 60s, I had a band um, called Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera, and that was the name of the band. What actually happened was that because uh, you know people come back after the gig and I was the lead singer, people assume, would assume that I was Elmer, which amused the rest of the band. So they basically started you know, taking the rise and uh, calling me Elmer as a joke. Now, you two are famous for being in the band Stretch, uh, also played in Curved Air. Mm -hmm. But there was a bit of a debacle going on in America with a certain famous group called Fleetwood Mac. I've got to ask you about that. Yeah. So what happened there? Well, it's a very uh, complicated story. (laughs) I mean, what happened, Elmer and I were invited to join Fleetwood Mac. Um, Not the real Fleetwood Mac. Well, yeah, Yeah, the the real Fleetwood Mac. Kirby and I were working together. We had a manager who managed Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac had a big bust up. This was in America, and Mick Mick had gone back to England, had he? Mick came back. Well, I think the English ones came back to England. And uh, so the manager suggested that uh, we form the new Fleetwood Mac, and it seemed reasonable. Kirby had just left Curved Air. was well known. I was well known from Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera. We both had sort of kudos in the business, so it seemed like a logical thing. Mick Fleetwood came to our house and um, we talked through the new band and it all seemed fine and um, Mick said, well, I can't actually come and rehearse with you because it was it was fairly imminent going back to America to tour, but uh, if you get an adept drummer, I'll join you for the tour. We all knew the numbers inside out. We picked all sort of tracks that Mick was happy with and that we were happy with. And in the event, we turned up in the States and Mick didn't turn up. We heard stories about, we have no idea who these people are who are pretending to be us. And it wasn't until about three years ago that somebody sent me anonymously some court papers uh, where in court in the 70s, Mick admitted that he'd been to our house and discussed Fleetwood Mac.
been thinking about what you have done to me. The damage is much deeper than you'll ever see. Hit me like a hammer to my head. I wonder where you pushed or where you led. Why did you do it? Why did you do that thing to me? Fleetwood Mac was formed by blues guitarist Peter Green in 1968, after he left John Mayles Blues Breakers, in which he had replaced Eric Clapton, to form his own band, with drummer Mick Fleetwood, guitarist Jeremy Spencer, and bassist Bob Brunning. Brunning was soon replaced by John McVie, Green and Fleetwood's former bandmate in the Blues Breakers. Fleetwood Mac was successful, and Green eventually added a third guitar player, Danny Kerwan, and also enlisted the services of a manager, Clifford Davis. But Peter Green swiftly became disillusioned with the trappings of success and fame, the inherent self-indulgence and narcissism, that he saw as embodiments of the star treatment. He was highly respected and very talented, but he decided the music business wasn't for him. Peter was incredibly generous. He was the leader of the band, and he put this band together. Peter was asked, why did he call the band Fleetwood Mac? He said, well, you know, I thought maybe I would move on at some point, and I wanted Mick and John to have a band. End of story explaining how generous he was. Without Green, Fleetwood Mac still had two guitarists, so they replaced him with a piano player and singer named Christine Perfect, a contemporary from the blues rock band Chicken Shack, and also the bass player's wife. The entire band, minus Green, purchased a Victorian mansion called Benefold, and they all moved in. But it seems that being in Fleetwood Mac was a curse for a guitar player. First came Jeremy Spencer's reckoning. According to one account by Mick Fleetwood, Spencer had difficulty recovering from a mescaline trip while on tour in the U.S. Shortly before the band was set to travel from San Francisco to Los Angeles, L.A. experienced a major earthquake. Spencer was freaking out and didn't want to go. He had bad premonitions and was very apprehensive. He pleaded with the band to call off the trip, but they went. Shortly after arriving in L.A. on the day of the gig at the Whiskey A Go-Go, Spencer left the hotel and went to a bookshop on Hollywood Boulevard. He did not return, forcing the cancellation of the concert. Some days later, he was discovered to have joined a communal cult called the Children of God, founded by David Brant Berg. Berg communicated with his followers by writing letters. He published nearly 3,000 letters over a period of 24 years, referred to as the Mo Letters. By 1972, the Children of God had 130 communities around the world. In 1973, Berg introduced a practice he calls flirty fishing. His older daughter, Deborah, who left the cult in the late 70s, explains the term. Well, I get, Dad got the terminology from fishing, what Jesus said in the Bible, to go out and fish for men. And so she was going to use the women to fish for the men, to bring the men to the kingdom of God through flirting. 
only the flirting was more than flirting. It was actually, you know, religious prostitution. According to Berg's daughter, Deborah, Berg himself has had an incestuous relationship with his other daughter, Faith, for years, although they both deny that's the case. In fact, a spokesman for Berg told 2020 that he does not advocate incest. Yet Deborah claims her father did approach her for sex, and that was the catalyst to her leaving the cult. My dad was just an evil personality that was not hearing from God at all. I had to quit looking at him as the man of my father, but as a, a leader of a worldwide movement who was destroying people's lives. With no choice but to leave Spencer behind, manager Clifford Davis convinced Peter Green to return to the band to finish the tour. But Green's return was only ever going to be temporary. He did it as a favor. So this is when American guitar player Bob Welch was recruited to join the band. Two more albums were released before the guitar player Curse hit Danny Kerwan. It is an autumn night in 1972, and the minutes before Fleetwood Mac are due in on stage for their latest gig of their US tour, a drama is unfolding in their dressing room. Danny Kerwin, talented guitarist and the glamour boy of the band, is drunk. At just 22, he is an alcoholic who goes for days without food existing only on beer, increasingly mentally fragile, he suddenly loses his temper over the simple process of tuning a guitar. Banging the wall with his fists, he hurls his expensive Gibson Les Paul at a mirror, showering broken glass over his bandmates. He then stomps off into the auditorium, pausing only to smash his head against a wall until blood pours from his face. Refusing to come on stage, he spends the show heckling the band from the audience as they struggle to play without him. Kerwin was replaced by guitarist Bob Weston, and Dave Walker from Savoy Brown also joined the band for one album. Walker soon departed, and later, in 1977, he would replace Ozzy Osbourne in Black Sabbath for a month. 
Bob Weston stayed on for the next album, Mystery to Me, and the subsequent U.S. tour. But during that tour, the curse hit again. Bob Weston had an affair with Mick Fleetwood's wife, Jenny. It came to a head. I and Mick's wife at the time, Jenny, we were uh, the very best of friends. It was like a... At the time, it was rather like a spiritual empathy because if you believe in from an astrologic point of view, we were born within an hour of each other. There's a kind of closeness. And we always uh, communicated very well and probably misread the, uh, the language. Um, we had a very brief affair. Fleetwood was furious and wanted to call off the tour, despite manager Clifford Davis threatening, quote, if you blow this tour, you'll never get another chance. Fleetwood didn't care. He fired Weston and canceled the tour. It was the fall of 1973, and Fleetwood Mac told Clifford Davis that they needed a break. But Clifford Davis didn't want to lose Fleetwood Mac's hard-won commercial momentum in the U.S., especially with a fresh album in the stores. In Bob Welch's words, quote, I guess he just couldn't wait. And uh, we told him, look, we're coming off the road. Mick needs a rent. We've got to sort this out. We don't want to work for until we say we want to work. We don't want to make a record until we say. The band's not breaking up, but we just want to. We don't know what we're going to do. And everybody just needs a long rest. This is ridiculous. So look, just wait until you hear from it. So he was informed that was the situation. But it was like, I guess he couldn't wait. Clifford Davis set out to put together a replacement band to send out on tour. And as the story goes, Mick Fleetwood initially agreed to participate. So in October of 1973, Clifford Davis recruited vocalist Elmer Gantry, formerly of Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera, guitarist Kirby Gregory, from another act managed by Davis called Curved Air, bassist Paul Martinez from the Downliners sect, who years later would perform as a part of Led Zeppelin's backing band at Live Aid, and keyboardist John Wilkinson. The new band assembled a set list, which they claim Mick Fleetwood approved, and rehearsed. But when the time came for the U.S. tour that Davis had booked to begin, Mick Fleetwood went AWOL. He was a no-show. They recruited a drummer to replace him, Craig Collinge, who had played with the legendary heavy British rock band Third World War, and was a member of Manfred Mann Chapter 3, the precursor to Manfred Mann's Earth Band. And so, a band calling itself Fleetwood Mac, but containing no actual members of Fleetwood Mac, set out on a U.S. tour. It was January of 1974. In a 2017 BBC radio interview, Elmer Gantry claimed that, quote, Mick Fleetwood came to our house and we talked through the new band and it all seemed fine. But Mick said, well... I can't actually come to rehearse with you, but if you get a temporary drummer, I'll join you for the tour. Gantry added that he had recently seen core papers from the 70s in which Fleetwood testified that this meeting had taken place. Kirby Gregory, also interviewed, said that he and Gantry had played Little Feet's Dixie Chicken to Fleetwood as an example of the type of music they liked, and that Fleetwood gave his approval to the set list. And we don't want to get 
The Fleetwood Mac tour began on January 16, 1974, at a venue in suburban Pittsburgh. The promoter of the show, Rich Engler, recounts in his autobiography that he had just formed a new concert promotion business and wanted to start things off right with a show that he knew would be successful. He booked Fleetwood Mac because he knew the musicians from their previous U.S. tours. But when five unfamiliar people arrived at the venue with Davis, Engler asked, Where's Fleetwood Mac? Davis said this was the band. Engler declared that they were not the band, and furthermore, he wasn't going to let them on his stage. At this point, Davis took a swing at him. And after security separated them, told Engler that his new agency would have trouble with people in New York if Fleetwood Mac did not perform. Engler decided to let the show go ahead, and the audience was surprisingly receptive. A quote from Engler, The band were really good. I don't know if the crowd was just really stoned or didn't know what Fleetwood Mac looked like. But several audience members did recognize the deception and demanded refunds. The tour continued on through January. On January 25th, they performed at the Clarkson College of Technology in Potsdam, New York. A paper called The Interrogator published a review of the show and even included a picture of the band on stage. The only picture I've seen of the band. The British rock band Silverhead, fronted by Michael DeBar, was the opening band for much of the tour, and the reviewer did not appreciate the band. A quote from the review, If a band is going to be so loud that it makes my ears howl in pain, it had better be good. Not so with Silverhead. What they did has all been done before, and I just as soon not hear it again. The reviewer goes on, Fleetwood Mac was good, but not great. They survived three power losses very professionally and really got moving towards the end of the show. I had but one complaint. Much too loud. I found another review of the show in a paper called The Raquette. This is the review. You know, it's been a long time since I've gone to a concert here, and after last Friday's spectacle, it may be longer yet before I see another. It's not so much the music that'd keep me away, but those little extras that made the night so, quote, enjoyable. General consensus has it that the concert was much too loud. I agree. Since when does music have to be ear-popping loud to be enjoyed? Granted, the acts booked sound best loud, but I didn't bargain for split eardrums the following two days. Perhaps next time around someone could cut the decibel level, save a little juice, and soothe my senses rather than torment them. Musically, I dug the concert. I thought Silverhead was good, although being familiar with the group, that opinion may be biased. It seemed to me the main shortcoming of the group lay in the audience's apathy. It seems Potsdam is a little too conservative for a jumpin' band, and this was demonstrated constantly by refusal to stand up and boogie along with the band at the lead vocalist's request. How can you expect the band to put full out for a dead crowd? Their vocalist sure didn't appear too pleased with the reception. In fact, he looked pretty disgusted and took it from there. Fleetwood Mac fared better with the crowd and at least got them on their feet. Although a revision of the original Fleetwood Mac, the group's material came off well despite a sit-in drummer who turned out to be very good. Don't get me wrong in thinking that one should get up and boogie at every gig, but when a band asks the audience to boogie, why not boogie? A performance is a two-way street. 
Bands like to know people are out there getting off on the music and not just token their brains out. <coughs> One closing comment. People gotta be a lot cooler waiting in line to get in before an appearance. Why push and shove? You'll get in. I, for one, don't particularly like being dragged completely off my feet through the door by the crowd. And let's not be such an asshole next time with the snowballs, okay? Somebody had a pretty mean arm up front there, but somebody could have gotten hurt. <coughs> the next night, Fleetwood Mac and Silverhead brought the tour to the Academy of Music in New York City. By this time, the story of the fake Fleetwood Mac was circulating within the music industry, and Rolling Stone sent a reporter to cover the New York show. Clifford Davis was interviewed at the venue and boldly proclaimed, This band is my band. I've always been the leader of the band as such. He claimed that Mick Fleetwood had flown to the U.S. on January 13th with the intention of being on the tour, but had to return home the next day because of family troubles. The show turned out to be a disaster. Gantry claimed that he had lost his voice. Rolling Stone noted that the venue and the promoters were not made aware of Gantry's vocal problems until after the opening set by the local band KISS, when it was too late to cancel the show and give refunds to the audience. That's right, KISS opened the show. It was something like their 28th gig, and the second and final time that Paul Stanley performed live with his alternate bandit makeup design. Billboard magazine actually published a review of Kiss's performance on February 9th, 1974. Quote, Kiss, a native New York group about to embark on the concert circuit after playing local bars for over a year, opened the show. Their set proved to be a lot more ear-shattering than it was earth-shattering. Wearing black leather and studs and white theatrical makeup, they rely heavily on visual effects. Their set climaxed with the drummer soaring high above the stage on a hidden hydraulic lift, while synchronized magnesium flares are ignited, and the bassist arches a flaming torch in the air.
While the promoters argued with Davis and the band backstage, Silverhead had to fill the time by playing a 90-minute set to a chorus of boos. A New York Times reviewer dryly noted that this was, quote, not to the advantage of the British group, which found its basic rock style stretched a little thin.
we'll see you again soon. Finally, it was agreed that the band billed as Fleetwood Mac would fulfill its contractual obligations by playing a set of instrumentals, and the 3,000 people in attendance were treated to a series of extended blues jams. The New York Times Review noted that, quote, Fleetwood Mac has completely changed personnel since its last New York visit. A few minutes after midnight, Clifford Davis took the microphone and told the audience, quote, We're going to try to work out something with the promoter to come back in March. The tour moved onward into February. Interestingly, at the same time, a group called Buckingham Knicks were on a tour of the East Coast, but this version of Fleetwood Mac was heading for the West Coast. On the way, they stopped in Twin Falls, Idaho on February 6th. A headline in the Omaha World Herald on February 17th talked about a lawsuit that this concert inspired. The headline, Imposters Staged Concert. The article read, About 3000 paid between 450 and $6 to see the rock group Fleetwood Mac in concert. What they got, according to a suit, was a group of masquerading musicians. A complaint filed in the 4th District Court by state officials has asked for restraining orders against promoters of the concerts last week in Twin Falls and Boise. On February 8th, the tour made it to Portland, Oregon, where Tim Buckley also opened the show. A headline in the Oregonian? Tickets up for refunds. The article reads, A controversy over musicians in the English rock band Fleetwood Mac scheduled to play the Paramount Northwest Theater Friday has caused the theater to grant ticket refunds to those desiring them. The next night, February 9th, the band played in Seattle with Status Quo opening. They moved on to Salt Lake City and on February 14th ended up at Chico State College in Chico, California. A reviewer of this show wrote that, quote, Five guys named Mo played to a half-empty auditorium and angry audience members stormed the box office and were told, quote, Sign this list, kid, and you'll be mailed a full refund. The band had the next two nights booked at the Winterland in San Francisco, but they canceled. It's impossible to know how many of the remaining February and March booked concerts were actually performed, but the band did make it up to Canada, where Status Quo opened another show in Edmonton on February 20th. And supposedly, on April 6th, they played in St. Louis, supported by Nazareth. Over the course of March, they were supposed to have played in Virginia, Missouri, Vermont, Pennsylvania, Florida, Michigan, Texas. I'm not sure how many of those concerts actually took place. On February 28, 1974, an article about the controversy was published in Rolling Stone magazine. I'm going to read part of the article here. Quote, The drummer, according to Davis, substituted at the last moment for Mick Fleetwood on this tour. It was at the end of the last tour in August, said Davis, that, quote, I just decided it was time to change the band, certainly on stage, and that's what I did. I've always been sort of the leader. I've always sort of picked who was going to be in it and who wasn't. I decided to keep Mick. But, Davis claimed, trouble at home forced Mick to fly right back to England the day after he arrived in America, on January 13th. So Davis quickly flew over Craig, a friend of the other musicians, to fill in. Davis said that before each show, he is informing the audience that Mick had personal problems and had to return home. However, informed sources say that Fleetwood was never booked to fly to America and that he did not come to the States at all. Bob Welch, the American guitarist who joined Fleetwood Mac two and a half years ago, 
when original member Jeremy Spencer found God in Los Angeles, denied the whole Davis story, and at press time was en route to England to meet with Fleetwood, the McVees, Weston, and lawyers to straighten the whole matter out. Said Welch on the phone before he left California, quote, It's a ripoff. The manager put together a group real fast using the name Fleetwood Mac before we had a chance to do anything about it. Both Fleetwood and Welch have said that around this time, Davis sent a letter to the members of the real Fleetwood Mac, saying that he wanted to put the band back on the road as a part of a star-studded new project and offering them those U.S. tour dates. But all of them turned him down, because they were not ready to go back on the road again. Some sources indicate that the new recruits were led to believe they were joining a new version of the ever-changing Fleetwood Mac lineup, possibly because Davis allegedly told them that Fleetwood and Christine McVie would be coming on board once the tour began. Fleetwood Mac collectively filed lawsuits to stop the tour, and Clifford Davis countersued, claiming that he owned the band's name and that because he also held the copyright to all the band's previous recordings, he had the right to choose who would play those songs live. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So I actually interviewed the drummer of this version of Fleetwood Mac, Craig Collins, and we're going to hear some of that interview right now. So you were brought in basically at the last minute to replace Mick Fleetwood, right? So I don't know whether it was the last minute, but I was rung up by the uh, Clifford Davis organization. Um, I guess it was an organization at the time, and asked me to come on down and have a play. I had been already had worked with the uh, Manfred Mann Chapter 3 band and Third World War uh, band that was kind of popular, not popular, they were cultish bands in England, uh, and another band, Alan, or Alan Price, which, you know, he was doing all the stuff. So they asked me to come on down and have a play with the idea that they didn't actually tell me what band it was, but they told me the basic background of it, that I would be rehearsing for six weeks, I think it was, and then off to America uh, to do the first gig. I think it was in Pittsburgh, but I might be wrong. Pittsburgh or somewhere like that. And that was the first gig. 
And then when I did the initial audition, or if you like, Clifford Davis came on down and spoke to me and said, well, look, uh, the band will be called, will be Fleetwood Mac and um, Mick Fleetwood's on holiday or he's doing this or doing that. And uh, you will get for him, uh, but he will join at some stage, but we're not 100% sure when it will be. So that was that was my understanding. And I got a retainer, basically a retainer for um, for playing in the band. So it wasn't it wasn't big bickies, but it was enough at the time to sustain me and uh, sort of family members, sort of thing. You know, so it was it was <laughs> you know we, we we weren't making millions, but I was making you know I was on a retainer. So <clears throat> I, you know my understanding was that I was just basically depping uh, for Mick Fleetwood. In six, for six weeks or something like that, and then uh, I would return to England, and uh, they would carry on with Nick Fleetwood. Well, that didn't actually happen, but anyhow, that was what I. That's how I was to understand how it would would work. Okay, that's interesting. So it was always presented to you as just a substitution role, and Mick was still the drummer in the band, and you were just filling in for him for this short tour, basically. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Six week, roughly six week tour uh, of America. And so, what was the set list like? Was it mostly Fleetwood Mac songs, or were there a lot of cover songs in there too? My memory goes that we did do uh, Albatross, was a reasonably well known, and we did a couple of other blues things. And then there was a couple of other things that I think were, they must have been covers. I'm pretty sure that, the, that they were. Um, but they were in that kind of blues roots tradition. Yeah. Uh, but 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 I I know that Albatross was a Peter Green composition. That was the one that <clears throat> I think had, it was a minor hit, or whether it was a minor hit in America, I don't know. But it, I know it was a minor hit in uh, England. It, well, might have even been a, almost a major hit because I think it was a single. So uh, that was uh, that was a hit. Albatross. That was that was an instrumental. Don't yeah. know whether you recall that one. Yeah. Okay. So as it was a it was a pickup band of all you know veteran musicians, it was probably didn't require a lot of rehearsal time. You could probably you guys could probably just head out on tour without a lot of rehearsal. Well, that was that was how I felt about it. One of the other guys had played together. Uh, you mentioned Kirby and you mentioned Al McGantry. Maybe they had worked together. I don't know much about Paul Martin. There's where he came from whether he was working with them but yeah well we look um we had uh, obviously with supposedly a, a, a tight band after six weeks um but look i was never really fully committed to the music i mean the, that that sort of thing was something well i was doing a job of work i was doing a professional job of work and so i just you know went and played at the time i needed to to go and work and of course i was touring America, which I wanted to do. I mean, if nothing else, there was... Well, I, I mentioned it to uh, John, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I liked the sex, but the, the drugs and the rock and roll didn't really interest me that much. <laughs> so as far as the itinerary of the tour went, did it kind of go off the rails, or did you were, you... were you playing all the gigs that were scheduled, or were you picking up gigs along the way, or how did the, the scheduling... Oh, no, no, no. The, no, no, the schedule was was uh, was uh, uh, was well um, it was uh, well uh, well known to all of us 
before we went. So, you know, in, on Wednesday we'll be in blah, 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 or on Thursday we'll be blah, blah, blah. This will be the, this will be the motel. So th- th- nothing was changed from that point of view. It was just that behind the scenes there was obviously, uh, there was obviously a lot of, um, well, I was involved in the, in, I can only pick up what was happening, but there was a lot of uh, bad vibes, if you like, or one of a word, um, uh, or two words, uh, for, um, you know, this was, they were felt as though they were cheated. In other words, some of the promoters probably felt that they were cheated, and perhaps the audience as well. Yeah, do you remember get, getting a lot of pushback from promoters and club owners? Well, all I remember is that behind the scenes, uh, Clifford Davis, who was probably with us a lot of the time, uh, was fending off lots of criticism. And that's why when, after about six weeks, I can't remember what our last gig was, might have been in Los Angeles, but I'm only, look, I'm, I haven't got the itinerary in front of me. You probably do. I know that there is, <clears throat> there is an itinerary for it, but I know after about six weeks, uh, we we all then went back to um, back to the UK. So it was folded after about six, maybe eight weeks, six weeks. I think it was. It was and cut. It was cut it. short. It was cut short. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there was there was supposedly another three or four weeks in involved. Uh, that was cut short. We were supposed to go to Chicago from memory, and I think that was the end of um, the end of the tour. Uh, and obviously, from that time on. As we got back, there were lawsuits and all that sort of stuff. I didn't get involved. I, look, they bought me, man, uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac uh, bought me a new drum kit, which I've still got. Cool. Uh, I play <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I play mostly piano mm-hmm. uh, when I'm playing anything. and um, But I've still got the drum kit that was bought for me. Um, and it's and actually, I'm looking at it. Um, so they bought me that. They paid me. I didn't have any qualms about, you know, anything else except that that I knew that there were all, all sorts of friction, all sorts of problems behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I've read. Do you remember Clifford Davis actually going up on stage and arguing with audiences? Do you? Because I've read a couple of. It seems like there's a couple of stories about that. Well, now you bring it up, I've got a funny feeling there was. Some, but I can't remember where that was. Um, I don't know whether I don't know whether, yeah, whether it was an argument, but um, yes, look, there was um, obviously there were people felt as though they were cheated. They'd paid their money to see what they thought was Fleetwood back, and they got this new band that they hadn't seen before. So look, I can understand that. And um, but uh, whether he, when you when you mentioned it, I thought there was a time there that. Someone, whether it was Clifford, I can't remember, got up and and uh, was uh, trying to uh, argue, if you like, the case of the new Clifford Mac. But uh, my memory of that isn't all that clear. There could there could have very well been. So, were there actually instances of where the band would walk out on stage and the audience would maybe start yelling or booing or or anything like that? Well, I do remember, yeah, I do remember a, ca- a few occasions, and I certainly remember uh, in Canada, actually, I think it was Edmonton and Calgary or somewhere, where we played, and and uh, I I thought I saw, it wasn't, but I thought I saw gunshots on that <laughs> thing. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. It was just 
scarred from they were knocking the bloody stage. And, they, you know, they put these big hammer nail things in there, and of course. Uh, but, but yes, there was obviously uh, the audience were alienated yeah. uh, from, you know, and, and, and were, you know, upset that they thought they were getting swindled. Right. Well, and, and you know, at that time, Fleetwood Mac was actually kind of a, a cultish band, like a lot of musicians and kind of very, you know, serious music fans would have been going to these shows, you know, not just like a, a casual crowd, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, they would have had, as I said before, um, the pop part of Fleetwood Mac with uh, Lindsay Buckingham and all those sort of people, that came a few years later, right. probably, probably 75, 76, or maybe, you know, roughly about that time when they had thing like Rumours. But the band Fleetwood Mac was basically a blues roots, originally anyhow, blues roots band. Yeah. So how surprised were you by the success of Fleetwood Mac, you know, a couple of years later after this tour happened? Well, do you know, I, 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 I had to say this, but I, I wasn't, I, I had done a job. I wasn't interested in, in that music at all, right. really. Uh, so I was really depping and doing a job of work. And then I left England about, when did I leave? probably about not much later than that period. So probably by the time they were successful, I was back in Australia. And my, and, and that was just a mem- distant memory for me, you know. Yeah. Mm. Well, mm. it's just interesting that this tour we're talking about is kind of, you know, the whole Fleetwood Mac organization was about as bad off as it could possibly have been, like just completely a a disaster zone and within a couple of years they're the biggest band in the world it's pretty crazy the turnaround that actually occurred there you know yeah well as i say look hits are everything aren't they i mean really yeah. uh how many times have we seen bands and people in bands being you know taken into court for illicit drugs or something and the next minute they have a hit and everyone's forgotten about it. I mean, that's what happens, and it happens in in all sorts of areas, politics. And it happens everywhere. You know, one minute they're uh, they're uh, they're a villain, the next minute they're they're a hero. But I mean, that's the thing with uh, Fleetwood Mac was that they had the big hit with Rumours. Uh, as I say, I was by this time I was back in Australia, and um, Fleetwood Mac was only you know it was a, another band that I had worked with. Yeah, and I don't, I don't even know what I I used. Um, maybe that's what El, El McGantry's uh, uh, worried about. I mean, I don't even think I used the Fleetwood Mac as part of uh, any kind of uh, resume that I would have used. Right, um, right, right, right. It was just, it was just, yeah, it was just one of those things that I did at the at the time. Um, but you know, years later, uh, all of a sudden, you're doing a podcast, John's doing, but so all of a sudden, that seems to be. You know, kind of of interest to people. I don't know. I don't know why, but that's you know, that's the way it is. You know, years later, probably it's seen as a kind of a a milestone of some description. Yeah. Well, so you were together for about six weeks. Did did everybody get along? Like, as you know, the group of guys that that were on the road together was there camaraderie? As I say, we 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 worked together as a. Um, as a rehearsal group for six weeks in London, mainly around the Shepherd's Bush uh, Chalk Farm area. 
and that was the rehearsal area. Then, and then we went on this tour. But when we got on the tour, and of course the the uh, uh, all sorts of innu- innuendos about the, the the new fleet was back on the bat, you know, as we were became sort of villainous. Um, I didn't <clears throat> I didn't really get on particularly. I mean, I didn't didn't I got on well enough with Elmer. Um, he had a good sense of humor, but I didn't really I wasn't really close to the others. Now, bearing in mind, particularly Paul and Dave, um, as soon as you arrive in these places and it's and it's Fleetwood Mac, they give you everything you know on the table. You know, you get your hire cars and you get your your, your drugs and your you know your girls and your uh, and everything else. So I think in some cases, uh, particularly Paul and um, Dave, finished. You know, they, they they indulged in the point where. In some cases, they were a bit, you know, not not really of interest in terms of being uh, able to articulate much, <laughs> apart from where's the next road. We weren't close to begin with. Yeah, right. Um, and I'd come from, as I say, I'd come from a, a different musical background. And uh, that being the case, I wasn't all that interested in, in the music, although they probably were. So you know that made a difference, but but as I say, uh, I fitted in because I more or less had to fit in because it was a job for me for six weeks. Was it Clifford Davis that asked you to come? How did he know to ask you? How did your name uh, come get into the mix? Do you know? Well, I I don't I don't I really don't know about that. But all I know is that I'd had um, a variety of. Uh, well-known band experience in in England, okay. as I mentioned before, the Manson Band, True. Chapter right. Three, right. Uh, the the uh, Third World War. So there was a there was probably some someone had mentioned someone. Why don't you ask Craig? I don't know. I don't. How, sometimes you don't know how this all works. I didn't know the other guys, uh, but they someone must have said, "Oh, we must get hold of Craig and see if he wants to do it." I don't know. Maybe they tried half a dozen others. Right. And they just, I don't know. What What was Clifford Davis like to work with? Well, he was like, uh, well, you probably don't get that show. Uh, uh, there was a, 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 an English show called, uh, oh, I can't remember. But anyhow, it was based around a East End kind of, Fargo East End spiffers, they used to call them. Oh, he was rather like that. The East End kind of came came up probably the hard way, and uh, so he thought he'd make money out of um, out of music, out of the rock and roll thing. Somehow he must have uh, met uh, Peter Green on you know somewhere down the track. Yeah, they con- concocted the name Fleetwood Mac, and that's why uh, uh, Clifford Davis thought he had a a pretty good and tight uh, legal. Uh, stand uh, for uh, for the name, right? I guess one one last thing I want to ask you about is uh, when you played in New York at the Academy of Music, the band Kiss actually opened opened the show. Do you remember anything about about that? I do. I you do. do. I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, what I did remember is the drums being circulated, so the drummer was on a sort of a stand and he got, <laughs> they were playing. Uh, we didn't see much of the show, but we saw enough of it to, um, 
to to say, well, what's this all about? Um, but yeah, they had uh, they had an audience there, and uh, obviously um, uh, an audience of Kiss fans. So, and we were, I would have thought, completely different to, to Kiss. So it was kind of interesting mix. But yeah, they were they were on the show, and they, as you say, opened up the show, and um, it was really quite a um, what I would have called almost like a circus act. I thought at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, did he breathe fire at that at that, that at that show? Well, it, was, it was sort of that sort of thing. You yeah, know, it was. It was. It was. I mean, obviously, uh, they had again hits, um, and um, and it became what really one of the biggest bands of that time. Later, down probably a year or two later, but you know, as I saw them at the time, it was kind of like a circus act. So it didn't didn't make. A gradual musical sense to me. <laughs> yeah, that was one of their first shows. They didn't even have a record out yet uh, in January of '74. No. So you played the pretty big crowds, right? Like I know the show in New York when Kiss opened was over three thousand people. So. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, as I say, um, uh, Fleetwood Mac still had, as you mentioned before, I had a cult following. Yeah. And so yeah, so there was, uh, was a big crowd. I mean, a big enough crowd. But as I said before. Um, they obviously were very disappointed that they weren't getting what they thought was would Mac that they paid for, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Craig. I really appreciate it. Not at all, Brian. If you can send us the, um, the link eventually when you get it all together, that would be lovely. We'll keep in touch that way, huh? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. So there is a story out there and I think Mick Fleetwood actually admitted to it, that the whole thing was a ruse concocted by Fleetwood in order to trick Clifford Davis into putting a fake band out on the road. Then they could sue him, get this into the courts, and reclaim the rights to the name Fleetwood Mac. And that's what happened. They ended up settling out of court, and Mick Fleetwood and John McVie came away with the rights to the name Fleetwood Mac. In later years, Mick Fleetwood actually said that in the end, he was grateful to Davis because the lawsuit was the reason that the band moved to California. This is a story from the April 25, 1974 issue of Rolling Stone. Quote, If this case goes on any longer, said Mick Fleetwood, I'll end up talking like a lawyer. Fleetwood was referring to the action brought by members of Fleetwood Mac to prevent former manager Clifford Davis from using the group's name for another set of musicians who recently toured America. The holdup in legal proceedings stems from Davis's apparent reticence to tell his account of what happened. He's had six weeks so far, said Fleetwood, and the judge may give him another week or so, but it seems he's finding it hard to give an answer. The group is confident about the eventual judgment. He can't stop us using the name, said Fleetwood, but we can certainly stop him. The band is anxious to settle quickly so they can go to Los Angeles to work on a new LP and plan a U.S. tour, but Fleetwood will see the suit to its conclusion. I think Davis thought we wouldn't be bothered to fight his takeover, said Mick, particularly as I'd been through a state of emotional trauma, but we'll see it through to the end even if it makes us go broke. So many managers seem to forget who is employing who, and who makes the money? They forget it's the people who bash the drums and twang the guitars. You see, it's not just vindictiveness. It's that he tried to take our livings away. 
smeared us as being fools for even letting this situation develop. During the recent tour of the Davis-hired Fleetwood Mac, audiences greeted the band with hostility, demands for refunds, and, in Boise, Idaho, with complaints filed with the Attorney General's office. Davis, who was on that tour, maintained that he was Fleetwood Mac and could hire and fire as he pleased. He had not informed promoters that his band included none of the Fleetwood Mac from previous tours and recent albums. Of 39 scheduled concerts, four were known to have been canceled as promoters learned of what Davis called the new Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood's explanation of Davis's behavior is that, after being told by the band that they didn't want to tour until they decided, he considered the possible loss of income and formed the new Fleetwood Mac. We have letters from him stating he had the right to the name. He said that he sacked the band before Christmas and then offered me a job on a wage basis. He has no right. The band is a registered company which employed Davis. What an insult. John and I were the band when it started, way before he came on the scene. Meantime, said Mick Fleetwood, his group will work without a manager. We'll look after ourselves, with a good accountant and lawyer. If something is too complicated for us to arrange, then we just won't do it. You can bet I'll never sign anything that's binding for longer than three months. After the courts ruled that the Fleetwood Mac name belonged to Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, the two band members set up their own band management company, CD Management. Warner Brothers made a new deal with Fleetwood Mac, releasing the album Heroes Are Hard to Find on Reprise in September of 1974.
But Bob Welch was suffering with personal and professional issues. His marriage was failing and he felt exhausted. He resigned from the band in December of 1974. Fleetwood Mac had become a punchline in the industry. It became a joke for bands to check into hotels as Fleetwood Mac. Led Zeppelin, who were banned from many hotel chains for destroying their rooms, were checking into hotels as Fleetwood Mac. Now, we were actually, as the faces, we were banned from all holiday inns, so we used to check in as Fleetwood Mac. They put a shift in. You know, we'd announce that we're having a party back at the holiday inn. And, on stage? Um, yeah, on stage, and everybody would flock back, and we let most of the girls in, not all the men. But then, Mick Fleetwood visited Sound City Studios. Where I met Keith Olsen, and introduced myself. He said, this is the studio. Oh, and this, uh, very lackadaisical. And this is something that I made in this studio, so at least you can hear what the room sounds like. And it was the Buckingham Nick sound. Stevie and Lindsay. We went into a mode where when Bob decided to leave, there was absolutely not even anything more than I had heard Lindsay's guitar playing. And my immediate thing was, well, I'm going to find out who that guy was, which is what I did. She asked me to join. But I said, well, you know, we're sort of a package. <laughs> the thing was is that they needed a guitar player bad enough to say, well, you know, We'll take her. If she's good, good. If she's not, she's gone, you know. Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks officially joined Fleetwood Mac on New Year's Eve 1974. The self-titled Fleetwood Mac album was released in July of 1975. The album hit number one over a year after entering the Billboard charts and spent 37 weeks in the top 10 and more than 15 months in the top 40. At this point, the album is certified seven times platinum in the United States, and the next album, Rumors, 20 times platinum. But what happened to the other Fleetwood Mac? Well, three of its members, Elmer Gantry, Kirby Gregory, and Paul Martinez, along with a drummer named Jim Russell, continued on, calling themselves Stretch. Clifford Davis got them a record deal. Quote, I set up Stretch to thank them for helping Mick Fleetwood and me out of a very delicate situation. Stretch's first single, the funky Why Did You Do It, which we heard at the beginning of the episode, became a surprise top 20 hit in the UK. Mick Fleetwood characterized the lyrics of the song as, quote, a direct attack on me for not showing up for the bogus tour, which I'd never promised to do in the first place. What did you do it? What did you do that thing to me? The only one who knows the truth, man, that's him, me, and you. Why did 
Drummer Jim Russell left the band before the recording of the second album, You Can't Beat Your Brain for Entertainment, and was replaced by future status quo drummer Jeff Rich. Elmer Gantry left before the making of the last album, Forget the Past. And now, to play us out... What does that mean, to play us out? I don't know what that means, to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. I'm going to leave you with a song by Stretch. So this is three of the guys from the fake Fleetwood Mac... Basically, the band continued on, just called themselves Stretch, put out three albums. We're going to hear a song from their first album, Elastique, which came out in 1975. This is called Miss Dizzy. She can sprinkle stardust in her silk.
I'll be back. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 